Welcome to 30 Brave Minutes, a podcast of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. In 30 Brave Minutes, we'll give you something interesting to think about. The topic for today is the magic of language. Joining the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, Jeff Frederick, are Diana Lee, Malagros Lopez-Fred, and Richard Vela from the Department of English, Theater, and Foreign Languages, and Chris Woolley from the Department of History. Now get ready for 30 Brave Minutes. As a scholar who writes, speaks, and teaches about the American South, I've been drawn to language for some time. Everybody knows that for those of us who spent a lifetime in the South, words matter. If you are from these parts, you don't order a bottle of pop or a can of soda. This can lead to what professional experts call a breakdown in communication. In half of the South, you ask for a Coke. In much of North Carolina, particularly up Newburn Way, you might want to call for a Pepsi, but never for a pop. When certain words come into our southern ears, we have a way of converting them involuntarily into something else. For example, if we hear, a quarter inch of ice might fall on nearby roads overnight, we convert that into, stop what you're doing and buy every loaf of bread and gallon of milk you can find. If we hear, as a result of the hurricane, the Waffle House is temporarily closing, those words turn into something like, the end of time is at hand. If we say, bless your heart, check to see if we're shaking our head when we say it. That'll tell you exactly what we mean. For Southerners, our words, accents, diction, and language are all conditional on time, place, occupation, and meaning. I've studied other tri-racial areas like Mobile, Alabama, Tampa, Florida, and New Orleans, Louisiana, but the words and language that form the daily dialogue of Robeson County, North Carolina, are unlike any other I've come across. The procurement of fast food in a drive through line or at a counter in this area is rarely, if ever, completed without the use of the words baby or bow or sometimes paw, terms of endearment that aren't quite used the same way beyond these parts. I am equally certain that regionalism, diction, word choices, accents, class, gender, race, and nationalism must also affect other languages. Across the globe, over 400 million native Spanish speakers exist, but they don't all speak the language in exactly the same way. As the second most spoken language in the world, Spanish is rich and textured, nuanced, and occasionally idiosyncratic. It is full of reference points used in written and spoken forms that add splendor and majesty to the spoken word. As a Southerner, I have a pretty good shot at figuring out if a person is from Mississippi and not Kansas, and more to the point, from the western North Carolina mountains and not lower Alabama. Is it the same with Spanish? Mexico is but one example, has 31 states. How similar and how different are the accents, word usages, and lexicon from one end of the country to another? Do experienced travelers and scholars of the language innately know whether someone is from the state of Chihuahua and not the state of Morelos? And what about national boundaries? How similar is the Spanish spoken or written in El Salvador, for example, to what is used in, say, Venezuela, where Spanish is the most common language, even if some three dozen other languages are part of the culture? To find out some answers about Spanish, spoken, written, and otherwise, I assembled an all-star panel of scholars who work with the language in its many different forms. Joining me today are Diana Lee, Milagros Lopez-Fred, Richard Vela, and Chris Woolley. And with apologies to this great panel, to the Royal Spanish Academy, and to our listeners for my own rudimentary and minimal Spanish skills, 
Let's learn about Spanish, a beautiful phonetic romance language with some fascinating mysteries. Let's start with the baseline. When and where and how did you learn Spanish, and what are some obvious comparisons and contrasts with English? Well, I learned Spanish in high school. I started Spanish 1 at 14, and I really liked the... Do we have a picture of that somewhere? Probably, but you don't want to see it, believe me. I really fell in love with the idea of studying languages. There's something mathematical about it and also artistic. So I decided at the young age of 18 to study at the university and have my major in Spanish. My friends teased me. They said, oh, why would you study Spanish? And now all of them in their 30s are jealous and are learning Spanish with Rosetta Stone. But when I went to university, I studied Spanish, and then I spent a year abroad in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And that is basically how I solidified my language skills. And then doing a PhD in Spanish also helps a bit with regards to learning. And uh, in terms of comparisons and, con in, you know, con contrasting elements, I think one of the things that I like most about Spanish is they say this a lot. English is a very scientific mathematical language, and Spanish is a language that is much better created to express emotion. And so when they say, actually, a lot of places, Spanish is the language of prayer. And I think there's a lot that can be said about that, but I'll pass the mic. All right. Yeah, my story is, uh, is somewhat similar. Um, I started studying Spanish in high school. I thought it was frustrating and, and fascinating and, and all those things. So I, I kept studying it. And then, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a historian, so I went and studied history. And it was a logical thing to study uh, the Spanish-speaking world. Um, so when I went to graduate school, I decided I wanted to study Latin American history. I uh, lived in Costa Rica for a while. Ostensibly studying Spanish, although there was a hammock on the beach there. Um, <laughs> yeah. I know there's a picture of that. <laughs> uh, again, I, I can neither confirm nor deny that. Um, but I, I would say the, the bulk of my Spanish knowledge comes from studying to read, you know, primary documents. Uh, we, we can talk about that later. Um, and also, I lived in Mexico for quite a while. I lived in Mexico City for oh, almost two years at one point, and I've been back several times uh, since then. So my, my Spanish is, is very Central Mexican. Uh, and which is, as we're going to discuss, I'm sure, later on, not the same as other places in Mexico and certainly in, in uh, Latin America. Did both of your confidence levels increase living among native speakers? Uh, in my case, I'll say uh, yes, because eventually you get to a point where you just don't care if you embarrass yourself. And once you get to that point, that's where you're really free to just sort of, uh, and I, in my experience, Mexicans are just really great about helping you and, you know, and, and you know, helping you say the right thing, but not judging you too harshly, which which made it easier for me. <laughs> Argentines are not as well known. We have your desk story later. <laughs> yeah, but I lived with a family, and at some point around month five, I re I realized that when she was knocking on my door to wake me up, I wasn't even thinking about it. It was mm. just language we communicated in. Wow. Well, Rose, what about you? Yes, well, Spanish was my, my first language, and so I learned it at home with my parents, even though I was born here in the United States, but I grew up in Puerto Rico. I'm fluent in Spanish, and I will say in English, too. Did you find yourself growing up speaking it, um, needing to translate it from the way others were speaking it, okay. uh, Americans were speaking it? Okay, not really. Okay, I mean, over the years, you, you tend to learn more about how the language function, either you know in English or Spanish, and sometimes you realize, okay, I'm thinking in English or I'm thinking in Spanish, 
And sometimes it's a little bit, you know, where do I draw the line? Right. But, I mean, it came out easy. I mean, yes, I learned Spanish, I mean, you know, at home. So that was an easy way, I will say, for me yeah. growing up. What about you, Richard? Actually, in two phases. I was born in Los Angeles, and um, obviously most of the people that lived around us spoke English, actually. But my grandmother and my dad's brothers, my uncles, lived there, and they spoke Spanish for the most part. So I had a little bit from there. When I, I, I went to kindergarten in Los Angeles, so that was only in English. When I came back to Texas, though, uh, all of my family there spoke Spanish as the first language. So I had to improve considerably to be able to communicate. So, you know, first grade, you know, started in uh, not at school and all. And my grandmother uh, on my mother's side there in Texas was very insistent that we learn a particular kind of thing and all that. So she would go through language drills with us. So I, E, O, U, El Burro Sabe Más Que Tú, and Era Con Era Cigarro, Era Con Era Barril, Rápido Corren Los Carros, Los Carros del Ferrocarril, and it's to learn the, the how to roll the R, for example, mm -hmm. or how to learn the, the vowels and all that sort of thing. But that was all that. And then in high school, I took Spanish, everybody did. In college, I took some. I taught Spanish in fifth grade, my first year teaching, and then it substituted occasionally when somebody was sick back in the first years when I came here. Mm. So some of you traffic more in the written word and some of you maybe more in the spoken word and some of you do an equal am amount maybe of both. Diana brought up a really interesting point about the sort of the splendor of the language in its spoken form. Does it lose some of that power and some of that poetry when it's written or when you're reading it? Talk about that a little bit. Uh, I don't think it loses any of its power in the poetry. In fact, I actually love reading poetry in Spanish. I think it's really, there's something about it that I prefer poetry in Spanish to poetry in English. But I didn't always feel that way. It wasn't until I realized how nuanced the language was and one word can mean so many different things. When I was just learning Spanish, it frustrated me immensely. And But the one thing that is interesting about knowing a different language is how, how much it pushes you to know your own language. Mm -hmm. So I began to realize how nuanced English is. The word the, for instance, you know how many different uses we have in English that we take for granted. And then in Spanish, just even the word the is not always used in the same context. So it's an interesting thing. I, I personally think that the oral language and the written language are both beautiful. So let me mention something about a course that I teach Latino literature. The generalization that a lot of Americans have is that everybody who is Spanish-speaking is speaking a quote-unquote Mexican. And the course, as I teach it, divides up into Cuban, Mexican, Puerto Rican, and Dominican to those that have a richer literature in English. It's a course with literature in English, both from Spanish writers. The thing that happens is that there's a lot of things that they say in that that will also be words in Spanish. Mm -hmm. So they have to kind of understand both. And they can see differences between the, the issues that are important for Cubans, for example, versus the issues that are Cuban for Mexicans versus the issues that are interesting and important for Dominicans and all. And so there's a lot of mix of that kind. And what I do find in that course is that I have a lot of people who are, in effect, third generation. Grandparents spoke Spanish. Parents spoke English, Spanish. And they grew up speaking only English. Mm -hmm. So they're often people who are Latino background but who don't speak Spanish, and this course sometimes reconnects them in, in ways that they tell me that they didn't expect it to. 
So what are the ways when you're uh, dealing with someone who's either um, very elementary in their speaking or their reading of the language or you're trying to communicate a text that you've uncovered to someone who doesn't really get it? How, what, how, do, you, how do you translate how you're trying to get them to think for someone who's used to only thinking in one language? I think you allowed Rush to take that <laughs> question. <laughs> okay, well, uh, the point is we have a lot of students that when they come even to Spanish one classes that, you know, first name and last name is in Spanish, but mm -hmm. they don't know mm. a word, or they're able to recognize some of the words that we're saying when we speak or we read, okay? But you have to get to the lowest level to explain them or find cognates. So that way they can make that association to see what is it that we're trying to say in a sentence and all that. And yes, I'm, sometimes I'm thinking in Spanish and in English, so we have to like mainly like train our minds and help the students to realize that, that that transition needs to be made in order for them to make sense of what they're reading or speaking. Mm -hmm. And then the, when they start doing that, they realize, okay, I remember this. My mom says this all the time or my parents say this at home. So I can get, you know, to know and make sense of what we're saying and say, okay, that's what they meant, but they never explained this to me. So that's where our job as a teacher, as a professor, is, you know, like, okay, you know, I'm getting you where you need to be in order for you to understand how the language works. If you hear someone speaking a language, do you have uh, an approximation of where you think they're from? I mean, is it, is it similar to the way it is with English in this country? Yes. Yes, we do. If especially, I'm from Puerto Rico, and we tend to cut many of the words. We do not pronounce the S's. We change the L for the N or for the R. And so I can tell if they're from Puerto Rico, from Cuba, República Dominicana. And then sometimes they can trick you because, you know, the accent is mixed with the English, so it's hard to tell. Mm -hmm. But I can tell. And it's the same in Puerto Rico like in other Spanish-speaking countries. It depends what area they're coming from, and I can identify if they're coming from the north, from the south, or from the center of the island. So I think it's about the same as in the United States. Chris, you lived in Mexico. Is it easy enough to figure out, well, that person's from northern Mexico or southern, or that's from the city, that's from the rural? Uh, I mean, I, I can identify Central Mexico or Mexican pretty, pretty readily as far, as far as vocabulary and everything. Because I spent so much time there, I'd recognize very, very quickly if uh, someone's from there. And, and you know, if you, I'm not as in tune to tell someone if the, the difference is between one part of the northwest of Mexico or the Peruvian tropic or something. But I tell the difference between someone who's from Mexico and someone from Cuba very, very quickly. I mean, I can, mm -hmm. for one, I can understand the difference in Mexico, and that's closer to the truth. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's one thing. Um, uh -huh. um, but there's a question of vocabulary, too. That a lot of the, the vocabulary of Mexico is very unique. Quite regular Mexican Spanish is not as known <laughs> anywhere else. Uh, and laced with cultural references as well. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I give an example. The, I, I, for the longest time, I thought the Spanish word for an elephant skull was a popote. <laughs> Have you heard that word? Anywhere but Mexico, it's like, you know, the word is pajito, right? I, I use that, I remember using that in other places, and I'm just looking at you like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it comes from Nahuatl, actually, mm -hmm. a, lot, a lot of the vocabulary does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we use that. One of the things that was 
very different for us is that in the southern cone, it's very recognizably different from Mexico, from Spain. So I kind of work more in broad strokes when it comes to accents. I wouldn't be able to tell you what part of Puerto Rico somebody's from. So I can definitely identify, are they from Argentina? Mm. And Argentines have a couple of different um, linguistic pronunciations that they use. So they, for instance, if you wanted to say my name is, um, or well, if you want to say I'm called me llamo Diana is pretty pretty straightforward in Spanish, but in Argentina it's very me llamo Diana. They, they have this shh that they call. And then um, in Spain, it's uh, a lot different because they, they pronounce their Z's and their C's often like with a lisp. And so I can kind of tell, oh, they're from Spain. But I definitely can tell when yeah. someone's from Argentina and I get so excited to hear their shh in my ear. <laughs> The rhythm and vocabulary are the things that I notice most. I've been in, in Cuba and in, in Honduras as well as Mexico. And certainly the things that they talk about are different, you know, especially foods and things like that, as you were suggesting. Um, and then the rhythm of it. In, in Cuba, it was a very, very different rhythm. And, and when I spoke, I could pass for being someone from Mexico who knew how to speak, but I was no way able to, to approximate anything like what Cubans do. Can you all pick up uh, distinctions when you read text the, the same way as, as with your ear? Only so much in terms of vocabulary. You cannot read yeah. a text and say, that person is from Cuba, that person is from Argentina. This is Chancellor Robin Cummings, and I want to thank you for listening to 30 Brave Minutes. Our faculty and students provide expertise, energy, and passion driving our region forward. Our commitment to Southeastern North Carolina has never been stronger through our teaching, our research, and our community outreach. I want to encourage you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. With your help, we will continue our impact for generations to come. You can donate online at uncp.edu give. Thanks again for listening. Now back to more 30 Brave Minutes. What's unique about the way Americans write Spanish? Are we any better or any worse at uh, picking up the language? I grew up on the border, and there's some strange mispronunciations. So at the minute someone opens their mouth, you know, okay, it's in English. When my mother uh, majored in Romance languages uh, in college, because she learned a bit of Spanish, and they go to a Mexican or some Spanish. My dad will make a point of ordering Elas con Palo just to make her uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And all of you work in texts, many of them from different time periods. Um, mm. How how much has has the Spanish language changed over time? In other words, if I handed you something, would you be able to say, "Well, that might be 18th century," or that you know that's uh, early colonial, or that's that might have been been last week? Is it? Does it change that noticeably? Um, yes, absolutely. I just taught 19th century literature last semester, and I, my students were like, I don't understand half of what's being said. And I said, it's probably much more straightforward if, if it were written in 21st century language. Mm -hmm. You'd probably understand it. It's quite different. It's as different from Shakespeare to modern-day literature in <coughs> English as El Quixote <laughs> is to um, modern-day Spanish literature. So you're talking mostly about literature then? Chris can talk about the historical documents. <laughs> well, so I, I, I can tell you that I spent a lot of time looking at documents from, you know, you know 1530 to 1820. Uh, and certainly there are differences. But in terms of, you know, what I read are mostly court records, uh, letters, and those kinds of things. 
And what's always struck me is how similar the language is. Uh, and I'm not ta- I'm not reading literature, but I but I would mm. think I- anyone who speaks Spanish today would be able to make sense out of something from the 18th century. Uh, but what is different um, are things like, uh, well, for one, that they didn't have lots of familiar punctuation in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. So there's just these endless sentences, and they're really frustrating, especially when you're trying to get your, your indirect o- uh, direct objects and things squared away, and it's not always clear. In terms of understanding it, it's not that difficult. What, what gets really hard with the documents is learning uh, the paleography, you know, learning mm-hmm. how to actually read the handwriting. Mm-hmm. There were certain mm-hmm. schools of, of yes. writing in the 16th century, and many of them looked like uh, they, they would have been illegal at first. But when you study them, and there are certain patterns, uh, abbreviations are really, really common, uh, especially in the 16th century. Uh, 16th century. Um, there's a lots of um, idiomatic things that you, you have to learn over time. But when, when you've seen it once or twice, and over time it'll come up again and again and again and again. Uh, and, it's, uh, and some of them are funny. You, you read uh, documents written to a particular official, and they'll say things like, you know, I kiss your majesty's royal feet at, at, at the bottom of the document. And, uh, a lot of stuff like that, yeah. <laughs> Those kinds of things. So suck ups have existed in every language for all of time. Oh, yeah, they, particularly in, in the Spanish world. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a way of talking. Richard, what about you? When you look at text, do you see word choice and word usage change over time? Well, the Latino literature that I teach is all pretty much 20th century and really pretty much like from World War II to now for the most part and all that. So I see regional differences. There's a movie called Zoot Suit, and there's a play and a number of things connected with it, for example, where they're looking at, at World War II and the uh, uh, that particular time period and the slang that was common then. The, the zoot suit outfit, mm-hmm. the language, and the pachuca character, and all that. So that's very noticeable, certainly, and all that. But but I don't go further back in history. I run into it a lot when I teach English. A lot of people think that Shakespeare is old English, and I'm going, no, you know. But that's a different issue. I think anybody who ever grades essays written in English today from current students would say that social media has changed the way in which people structure sentences and write and think and produce language um, with uh, with pen and ink. Is that true of Spanish as well? Has social media changed in some of the ways? And how so? I teach um, the beginning course for uh, writing composition in Spanish. And, you know, there's so, so many things that uh, we have to include, uh, you know, when we write. Like, for example, in English, you say people, but in Spanish, you have to say las personas or la gente. And so they tend not to write the definite or indefinite article because mm-hmm. they think it's not needed. But then they try to write like they send their texts. And so that is a problem. And we have to train and explain the students, you know, you're not writing to your friend. Right. This is something that you're going to write to somebody that you do not know. And you need to be professional. So I start by taking them to the computer lab, giving them the basics, how to write, and, and you know, get them to improve their writing Okay, as we move along, I see the progress. But yes, they everything short sentences, and uh, they omit verbs. Okay, like they do in English, and so that's something that we have to work, especially in the writing courses. You guys all have horror stories. Uh, yeah, certainly. When the, then I think at least the students at UCP, we have a, a, a diversity of students who study Spanish that can write at that level. And so you have students who are really well-trained in writing in English, um, and you have students who aren't. <laughs> and so there's just, there's a lot. <laughs> differentiated learning takes on new meaning when you're working with students who know how to write generally in a formal format, and then you put an extra language barrier there, and, and it just, 
sitting there for hours looking at it, trying to make sense of it. Not all of our students, obviously, but it's, it takes an extra amount of work, I think, to grade an essay in Spanish. And it's in particular, like Mila just said, because students are not uh, accustomed to the formal style of writing that you might have. It's the distinctions lots of times, you know, the, as you were suggesting, the formal, informal, mm -hmm. the you know, true says and all yeah. kinds of things like that, that that they miss, it seems to me. Although I, I don't have the, the experience that you're talking about because all my, everything they write for me is in English. But mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, Related to that, I'm teaching medical Spanish this semester, and it does not matter how much I tell them, you really need to be formal with each other in these situations. Mm -hmm. If you are a nurse or a doctor at a hospital, you have to be using the formal. So they, they do these situations where they ask these teachers about, it does not matter how many times I tell them that, they will only use the informal to, mm -hmm. they just can't, they can't make themselves use the formal situation there. And so yeah. it's something that I have to kind of nail into their heads. And then they tell me, but doc, but Professor Lee, nobody's using that at the hospitals. Everyone's using two. And I'm like, I don't know if that's true. I think the people who really have conquered Spanish and are professional in those settings are mm -hmm. using usted in hospital mm -hmm. situations. Mm -hmm. Chris talked about looking at like some 16th century documents earlier and at the risk of generalizing, one might gather that someone writing at that point in time, you know, was either elites or somehow connected to elites in one, one way or another. Is there a language of commoners that's strikingly different from the language of elites? And I know we see that in some of the penny press and some of the um, publications that, that came out particularly in Mexico and other places. but. Can we see how people communicate in the Spanish language differently based on class dimensions? Very much, I think. Um, and there are a couple of different ways. One of the suggestions we do recruitment a lot is the Pachuco. And the whole idea there is a particular social class and orientation, and it's less, less affluent, certainly, and all that. But there's also, um, I saw a, little, a lot of this growing up, and, and that was kind of what my grandmother would warn us about and all that. If you mispronounce certain words or, or drop certain words or use informal, you're supposed to use formal. A, a, a lot of the slang comes out that way pretty much. We're essentially saying um, things where, where um, for example, if you say ama and apa rather than mama and papa, it suggests that you're sort of lower level, for example. And there are lots and lots of examples mm -hmm. like that. Uh, if you combine English with Spanish in certain ways, for example, "wachare," you know, meaning "watch out," that sort of thing, <laughs> or, or and there are lots of uh, combinations like that 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 also work. But it, it again suggests uh, a lack of of training in Spanish and lack of of a, of a sort of a deeper background in Spanish. Uh, it's the kind of thing where they where from Mexico they would say that you're "pocho uh, cholo" or something mm -hmm. like that, that you're not you know authentic in effect. Yeah, and one of the things that I find interesting that I don't know if our students realize it, but they a lot of them are from the U.S. and they grew up speaking Spanish, and so they're totally fluent. And then they bring to this this English Spanish mix, and mm -hmm. I'm I think my Spanish is uh, the Spanish of the the person who intellectually at the university is teaching, and so I'm trying to get them to move away from some of those, and they're very resistant because they they will tell me, but people don't talk like that where I'm from, or my parents wouldn't understand, or like. I go to the hospital, they might not understand, or they would understand if I said, you need to chequear, chequear. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, chequear is just from English, you know? If you go to Argentina, they're not going to understand chequear, I'm sorry. And they're like, but Dr. Lee, but everyone speaks like that here. And so the English, the Spanish in the U.S. actually has its own linguistic mm -hmm. characteristics that has evolved from the generations of people living here and speaking it. 
Would you say it's a gendered language too? Are there ways in which women speak or write the language that seem to be somewhat different than the ways in which men do? I think there is a movement lately, isn't it, Latinx, to try to think more in terms of, of not so much you know male and female because the language is set up that way, mm -hmm. uh, pretty much, and and the idea is to move away from that to some extent. Mm. Um, I don't know for sure if you can say that women speak a particular way or women, uh, men speak a particular way. In this time and date, certainly, I think you know way back probably seven, but mm -hmm. not these things. Okay, I don't think things are different. Like you said, they're no. trying to get to the Latinx and all that, but I yeah. mean right now because our words in Spanish have gender, sure, and you know, and yeah. so, and and some students are already asking about it. Are we? Do we have anything in com? You know, in between that is not gender wise. I said, well, right. until today, we don't. But you know, with the evol evolution of everything of the languages, mm -hmm. I don't know where we're going right later mm -hmm. on on that. For many of our listeners who only speak one language and it's not Spanish, what would you tell them about Spanish? What would you like them to walk away feeling about that, the language that you work in every day? Uh, well, I, I would say that you can learn it, and you should. We live in a Spanish-speaking country. I, I think the United States is the third largest Spanish-speaking country. Yeah. I think uh, there are more Spanish speakers here than in Spain. Um, and, you know, just one, just learning a few words here and, and going into, I don't know, I guess Babel or what's the other one that people are using? Uh, Rosetta Stone. Rosetta, you know, these kind of things. Right. You know, the, the more you learn about something, it's easier to break in. And, and it's, it's, you know, there's a whole world there. And, and it's, you know, it takes work, and like anything, but uh, it is, it's, it's really rewarding, you know, to really learn and, and get into that world. Yeah, um, I think it is possible, and people should know, should learn another language, and why not Spanish? Expand your area that yeah. you that you can discover more about other countries and not the own that you where you live at. So that's a, a must, I think. You know. Well, what a great way to ex to expand your horizons mm -hmm. and enter through the gateway mm -hmm. of a new culture, mm -hmm. right? And so yes. many unique and interesting elements of it. Well, and there and there are a number of jobs that are available for bilingual people, and that's important. My yes. sister works for a health corporation in Dallas, Texas. And she does what she does because she can handle both languages, and and that makes a big difference. But I mean, as, as he was saying a minute ago, there's a tremendous number of people in this country who speak Spanish. You can't walk through Walmart at some hours of the day without hearing someone, you know, speaking Spanish, for example. And sometimes you'll see the kids, for example, translating for the parents or things like that. It's the usual sort of situation, but but it, it's pervasive. And, and when I grew up on the border, there were many cases where if you didn't know Spanish, you could get left out in some very obvious sorts of ways. You know, how much is that going to cost? Dile esto. And somebody <laughs> would charge you a price that was above because mm -hmm. they knew you didn't yeah. know. Mm -hmm. It's like going to a car dealer and not knowing how to speak car dealerese, as right. it were. Right. <laughs> and um, I just have, have to say, if I had a dollar for every time a friend of mine said, if only I had studied Spanish harder in college, I'd be a rich woman. So long-term thinking for our college students in particular, when you look back like 10, 20 years, this is actually the time that you can really focus and learn these kinds of things. It gets harder as you get older, but it's super useful for our students. Super. It's too cool. Well, I might ask you to end with a favorite word in Spanish, but at the risk of tempting fate on a Friday afternoon, <laughs> uh, in grace and civility, we won't go there today. 
this has been great. You guys have uh, taken us inside a language that many of us know a little bit about, but but not nearly what you guys do. And so thanks very much for a really interesting discussion. And for those of you listening, wherever you're listening, in whatever language you're listening to, I hope you'll tune in next time for a great discussion. Today's podcast was edited by Richard Gay and transcribed by Janet Gentis. Theme music created by Riley Morton. This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of UNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research, technology, or industry standards. Thanks for listening, and go Braves! Good job, everybody.
Good job, everybody. Good job.